I want to tell you a story about a couple, an old couple. They've been married for 50 years, and you imagine most people who've been married for 50 years, you would want to celebrate that level of commitment they've shown to each other. 50 years is a big achievement. But as you spend time with this older couple, perhaps they live down your road and you live somewhere not like London where people actually talk to their neighbours. So you get to know them, and, and as you spend time with them, you realise there's something a bit unusual about this couple. Uh, she, they look after each other in various ways. She still makes him dinner, and he takes the bins out and looks after the garden and does a bit of cleaning around the house. They're not unfaithful to each other, but you realise there's no warmth in their relationship, no intimacy. They don't share a bed anymore, and even though they're polite and pleasant to each other, there's no tenderness, there's no affection. Uh, they perhaps do little errands for each other, but there's no love. They remember a time when there was love, when they loved each other very dearly early on in their married life. But over the years, that love has just fallen away. And now they're like two people who just live side by side, almost happening to bump into each other. But their relationship, of what, it is, what we might say is a relationship, is actually really no more. We would say there's something deeply wrong with that marriage. It might appear like faithfulness in a superficial basis on the surface of things, but in reality we'd say that's really no marriage at all. And we could describe it as something of a loveless marriage. Or put it another way, let me tell you another story. You're on holiday in the UK and, and it's a Sunday and so you say, okay, I'm going to go to church. And you go into an old church and they're singing traditional hymns, um, orthodox hymns. And, and you say, that's, that's, Christ is celebrated here and uh, the sermon is orthodox, the, the minister doesn't say anything obviously heretical. Um, but as, as you start to spend time there, you realise there's something wrong here. The minister doesn't really seem to want to be there. He almost feels like he's just there because that's his job and he's paid to be there. And uh, in fact, the people serving there are checking their watches and just kind of seem to be looking for the end of the service. And what, after the service is over, people just bustle out. They don't talk to each other. There's no sense of love for each other. It seems like they've just ticked a religious box and they move on. In fact, as you reflect on the thing, you think there was no sense of hunger for God there, no sense of affection for him. The prayers were formulaic and perfunctory. There was there's no real sense of meeting with God or affection for him or, or love for God. No love for God, no love for each other. So there's something deeply wrong. I think you might describe it as a kind of loveless church. And what I think is interesting about both those stories, whether it's a loveless marriage or a loveless church, is they both seem something deeply wrong, but it also feels very plausible. We almost might have, you've probably heard or met or encountered couples like that. You heard of churches where actually there's a kind of appearance of a, of, of a healthy church on the surface, but underneath it there's no real passion, no real love. And that, I think, is the passage, that is the story of the church that I want to talk about tonight. We're going to look at Revelation uh, chapter 1 and 2. And we're going to look at Jesus' letter uh, to the Ephesian church. This is a church that started well. 50 years before this letter was written, uh, we saw this church planted in the book of Acts. And we saw it establish itself and uh, people, there's many salvations, many people come to the faith. Paul's there for a couple of years. There's lots of fruitfulness. In fact, so much fruitfulness at one point that the people... Um, signal their, their conversion to Christ, they take all their, their books and stuff that was devoted to black magic and burn it. And there's like something like in today's money, about four to five million pounds worth of black magical material, all the kind of books and stuff like that, which is being burnt. 
So we've seen they made a, a great sacrifice. A great, I think we see the, the evidence of conversion. And then 50 years later, you'll hear this is a very different story. The light has gone out. So let me read to you. Uh, first of all, I want to read to you who is speaking to them. We're going to read from chapter 1, and then we'll go to the letter in chapter 2. This is a vision from the Apostle John writing at the end of his life. He's an old man um, on the island of Patmos, and he experiences a, a, a direct vision from the Lord, and this is what he says. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And this is who is speaking. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. On an turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet was like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many voice, waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then later on, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who found themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Much to commend them. And then he says this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The question I want to ask you today as we look at this passage is, are you in danger of loveless Christianity? Are you in danger of exactly the same error that this church falls into, that the light has gone out from their faith, that they no longer have a love at the center of all this great devotion, all this kind of activity they do, this hard work, this perseverance, this doctrinal um, focus, that they, they fight to keep the truth, the, to reject the lies, but actually they've forgotten the most important thing, love. Love for the living God. Are we in danger of the same loveless Christianity? I think this is the essence of what Christ calls us to. And it may sound intuitive. You're like, of course, if you're a Christian, you've got to love God. That's, surely that's Christianity 101. And yet I think it's so easy to fall foul of the same issue, same error as the Ephesian church. If you're not a Christian, I guess I want to start by provoking you to see, in some sense, the Christian faith is simpler than you realize. 
The very essence of what Christ would call you to is a loving relationship with him. Everything else can be put to one side. The question as you look at the Christian faith is really a simple one. Does Christ deserve your heart? Does Christ deserve your affection, your love, your devotion? That is the the question that anybody looking in at the Christian faith must answer. And I think it's absolutely, the answer is yes, but you must decide. So I want want you to hear this morning, and I guess I want to give you four questions to answer tonight. First of all, who is speaking? I think it really matters when you hear this warning. You have to think about who is speaking to us. Second of all, what is the danger? What exactly is this loveless Christianity? Thirdly, who is this for? I want to suggest that in one sense this is specifically relevant for some of us, but actually has application for all of us. And then finally, what should we do? How do we respond to this threat? So first of all, who is speaking? Well, in order to hear this warning rightly, we must see who is speaking to us, hear who's talking to us, and see that it is the risen Christ who is ruling over us. And really, this is a word of command for us all who would call Christ Lord. I think this, the book of Revelation is really actually helpful here, that it reshapes our vision of Christ. There's a danger that some of us, when we think of the person of Christ, we see a, a wandering Jewish teacher in Galilee. And of course, that's right. Perhaps we think of a crucified Messiah. Again, that's right. But it misses that actually right now, where is Christ? Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over the whole world. This is earlier on in Revelation, verse 5. This is the ruler of kings on the earth. This is the great king of the universe. This is, in one, in one writer said, this is not a pale Galilean, but a towering and furious figure who will not be managed must see this great image of glory here, the, the, the white hair symbolizing kind of perfect holiness, the blazing eyes of fire that speak of coming judgment and the fact that Christ will not tolerate impurity. We, speak of, we see one who is sovereign over his church. You hear uh, it described in verse 16, uh, one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Well, really, it's describing how those stars are the churches. These seven churches, we're reading the first one here, the seven words to seven churches. It's speaking of saying Christ is the one who holds the fate of his church in his hands. Christ is the one who, who controls the future of his church. Sometimes we look at the church and we're aware that it's very messy and we've got abuse scandals and sinful leaders. And the the book of Revelation will present you that picture, a very messy church. Here's one messy church. There are six more to come. So in a sense, it doesn't disabuse us of that reality, but it says, no, Christ is reigning. Christ sees all and he controls the future of this church. And that's why he says to this Ephesian church, if you don't repent, I'll remove your lamp. Essentially, I'll, I'll remove your status as a church. This is Christ who has control of the church. But more than that, this is the risen Christ who sees everything. I love this. At the beginning of chapter 2, it says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the seven churches, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And those lampstands, again, is another picture for the church. It's saying Christ walks among his church. He can see everything. You can imagine like him inspecting the lampstand and seeing. And that's why, of course, he can speak with such direct clarity to the Ephesian church, because he knows everything. Christ sees everything. Everything we do as a church. How we treat each other. The state of our worship. Are we actually worshiping Christ in our hearts when we sing? 
Whether we love each other, are we just kind of bumping along and next to each other, or do we actually treat each other as family, as brothers and sisters? When we serve each other, are we just doing it out of a kind of, oh yeah, I'm on, I'm on doing this serving, I've got this thing to do, whether it be hospitality or venue or whatever it is, or actually we're doing it as a, sign, as a, as a mark of love for one another, for love for God? Nothing escapes his notice. This is the Christ who walks among the lampstands and sees everything. There's a sense of immediate accountability here, that Christ sees everything, sees all of life. And of course, there's, there's comfort here in this reality. It says, when you see abuse or you see sin in the church and you think, why is someone not stopping that? Or that, that's, something, that's an injustice that needs to be corrected. We say, no, Christ sees that and he will correct that when the time comes. He will, there will be a, a kind of moment of reckoning for that. Christ sees it all. It means when you are working hard, when you're sacrificing yourself for Christ and maybe you say, no one else sees it. We say, no, Christ sees your sacrifice. Christ sees your hard work. That's why he says to these Ephesians, he says, I see your hard work. I see you've been slogging your guts out for the gospel. But it also means that Christ sees our secret sins. As I've been reflecting on this passage, I just occasionally remind myself, as I'm going through life, Christ sees this moment. You know how we, how we naturally kind of say, well, no one else can see what's going on at this moment, and I can kind of do what I want, and I can, you know, no one else is around, so I can kind of do that thing that I wouldn't do if everyone else was around. Actually, I've been correct, I found it really helpful to remember that Christ is, is present with me, that he sees everything, that I'm never kind of truly alone in that sense. But it's more than that. Christ sees beneath our actions. He sees the state of our hearts. In Revelation 2, later on in the chapter, he says, I am he who searches mind and heart. In a sense, he sees beneath the kind of veneer of activity or, or, or kind of obvious uh, obedience and says, no, what is the state of your heart? And I think that is what Christ is most interested. That's why he can say to the Ephesians, you could all this activity, but I'm interested in your heart. And you've got to hear that this is Christ who is not just doesn't just see what's going on, but he's speaking to his church. There's a sense that Christ is speaking to his church now. And it's something that I think we need to carry with us as we open the Bible Sunday by Sunday, as we meet together, that Christ wants to speak to his church. That's how he leads his church in this moment today, not just in the past, but in the present. Here is Christ with a great sword coming out of his mouth. Here is Christ with a voice that sounds like the, the uh, rushing waters. Have you ever st- stood next to a, a great um, waterfall and the way that the, the, the noise of the waterfall just kind of engulfs you, that you cannot, can't hear the voices of the people around you? It's that sense of Christ's voice thunders to his church. This is the way that Christ leads and shapes his people as he speaks to us like a sword used to cut off all the kind of bits that he doesn't want to shape and refine us. He has specific rebukes and encouragements to speak to his people. In one sense, these are seven letters to seven churches, but, but they're more than that. The, the seven here is a, a significant number. It speaks of completeness. It speaks of seven, you know, seven days of creation. That, it's not just that these are seven words to seven random churches. This is essentially Christ's word to the church, the global church throughout history. And it, but more than even that, it speaks of the principle that I believe Christ is wanting to speak to us, to speak to us as his people, to shape us with his word week after week as we come under him, his authority. When we open the Bible, when we hear prophetic insights, when we hear, as we seek to faithfully understand God's will, we need to remember that Christ is speaking to us, that he's reigning 
and that we want to listen to his voice. That is who is speaking here. Second of all, then, what is he saying? That's really the most important thing here. What is the danger? And really, it's quite simple, but I think it has profound implications. Despite their years of service, Jesus wants to show the Ephesian church that they've lost sight of the most important thing, love for God. This loveless Christianity that I think we see them embodying is a contradiction in terms. Now, there's a tension in this text. Jesus has eight, seven or eight, depending on how you count, great encouragements or, or commendations to the Ephesian church. He lists them off. He said, they're doing many things well on the surface. They've got hard work. They've, they've slogged their guts out for the gospel, basically. They've persevered through suffering. They've endured hardships, even persecution, uh, probably. I think because it, it's hardships for my name. So it's probably speaking of enduring persecution. They were a beleaguered minority in a culture that worshipped on one side Artemis in Ephesus, one of the uh, Greek gods, and also... Um, Worship the cult of the emperor, you know, essentially worship Caesar as Lord, as God um, in the flesh in some sense. And so here they are in an unfamiliar environment, and they've held on to the truth. So there's many commendations, and yet what he has to say to them is so serious that he says, if you don't repent, I'll remove my, your lampstand from you. Basically, I'll remove your status as a church. How can we make sense of this list of commendations, and yet the, uh, the fact that he's willing to remove the lampstand when they're doing some things right? And the answer is because with, if they don't get this thing right, if they don't have a love for God, then the rest of what they're doing is irrelevant. Loveless obedience is worth very little to Christ. Loveless obedience is worth very little to Christ. Christianity without a love for God is a contradiction in terms. It doesn't make sense. You see this in the first commandment in Matthew 22. The first thing, the, human, the, kind of, the summary of the law, two, first two commandments, uh, or rather the two commandments that sum up what God requires of man. The first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Saying before you get to any kind of activity, any kind of great other acts of obedience, the first thing is that you love the Lord. And without this love, all your sacrifices and service and anything you do in the name of Christ is, is kind of irrelevant without an undergirding worship and love for the person of Christ. You see this again in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul speaks of various different aspects of, of kind of what we might consider giftedness or service and says, without love, these things are meaningless. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So you can have all the gifts of tongues you want. You can be as spiritually gifted as you desire. But if you don't have love, then you're just making a noisy, clanging cymbal. And a noise that is, quite frankly, offensive to the ears. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. You can read all the theology books you want. You can have all your spiritual gifts. You can minister in all sorts of ways. But if you do not have love, then it is of little worth. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You can give yourself away. But if you're not doing it out of a love for the Lord Jesus, then it's kind of pointless. That is, I think, what Jesus is saying here. 
I think, by the way, if we say, what is this love? Are you sure it's the love for God? Well, I think he talks about it being the love that they had at first, or their first love. I think by that means we must say it's definitely the love of God. It may also have implications for how they love other people, but it's certainly speaking of a love for God. Just take a moment to think about this, and, and you see it has all sorts of implications. A church without a love for God is impotent. It's like a, a car without fuel. The, the love for God is what drives every part of our Christian life. It's why some of you would choose to get up in the morning before you go to work and spend time reading the Bible, because you love God. It's why you would choose to uh, spend time with someone who otherwise you might find quite difficult and not enjoy spending time with, because you say, no, this person's made in the image of God, and I love God, and I want to serve this person. Love propels us forward in the Christian life. Our love for God is kind of the the driving fuel of the Christian life. And without it, well, I just don't think you'll go very far. Love is a kind of mark of authenticity. The The church without love, it can be a bit like fool's gold. It looks like the real thing on the surface superficially. They might go through all the right routines and say the right things, but scratch beneath the surface... And actually, it's not really that what it said it is. It's just some cheap metal, not the real gold that you're looking for. Because it's about the state of your hearts. Just like a loveless marriage, loveless Christianity makes no sense. But I think this is hard to understand. So first of all, I want to say, what is this not calling? What is this not saying? Well, I don't think this is saying that uh, you need to, pushing us towards a kind of emotionalism. I don't expect after this uh, sermon that everyone is standing up and weeping and kind of uh, raising their hands or doing some kind of crazy, ostentatious display of emotion because we know that we will all express emotions differently and it's not kind of calling for kind of a a frothy emotionalism in our worship. Neither, I think, is it calling for a kind of anti-activity. It's not saying that the Christian life is only you know, in your bedroom, you worshipping Jesus and talking to him, and, and that you should never do anything. What I think it's putting its finger on is activity without love. Action, which is just a kind of superficial obedience or going through the motions, without the undergirding desire. We see that Jesus commends activity here. He commends their perseverance. In fact, he's, in, other, in John's Gospel, he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So love will result in action, but action without love is pointless. It's not a rejection of faithfulness or perseverance. Perseverance is good. Christ commends their perseverance. But I think it's, what is the engine fuel of your perseverance? Is your perseverance just a kind of human oh, I'm just going to grit through this difficult situation. I'm just kind of going to push myself through with my own grit. Is it a kind of uh, proud perseverance? Like, I'm going to hold on to to this faith when it's difficult and life throws different curveballs at me. Is it it built out of pride? Is it built out of kind of human grit? Because actually, that that will run out. That's insufficient to drive you through the difficult circumstances of life. Really, this is speaking of a perseverance which is filled, ultimately, with a love for Christ that says, even though this is difficult, and even though I, I'm, I'm struggling with this, I have one who loves me, who I can hold on to, who I can look to, who I know is in control, and will work out his purposes through this season. It's that, that love, that affection, that confidence in him, that trust in him, that will give you the perseverance that you need. So it's not anti-perseverance, but it's anti-perseverance without love for Christ. So what is Christ calling for? Well, ultimately, I think this is speaking about the affections. And I don't, honestly don't think we can say this enough. Our affections, our posture towards Christ, our feel, our, for one of a better word, our feeling towards him. 
Think about the way that the Bible speaks of, Christ, of the Christian people in relational terms towards God. As the bride, how does a bride feel towards her husband? Well, I think she must feel love, otherwise there's something wrong. A friend, how does a friend feel towards his friend? Jesus descri- describes his disciple as his friends. Jesus describes himself as our older brother. Well, good fun- well-functioning brothers love their brother. He describes us as sons and daughters of the living God. Song of Songs describes us as lovers of the living God. All of these are relational words. And really what they they speak of is our heart posture towards God. They say, are you hungry for God? Do you feel a need for God? Do you feel like you'd be lost without him? If you don't connect with him for a few days, do you miss him? Do you feel an absence? Do you notice that absence? Do you feel like you want to be with him? Do you genuinely look forward to the day that you will see Christ face to face with anticipation and excitement? Because I think we should. Or adoration. Do you see his beauty and his majesty? Do you have a sense of his greatness? Do you find yourself marveling at Christ? Or are you bored by him? Does he just feel kind of routine and not really... Marvellous, because I think that's very easy to happen in the Christian life, but it's, it's deathly if we feel like he's just another, if we just kind of are bored by him. Or devotion, are you drawn to him? Do you want to serve him? Does his opinion of you matter to you? This really, put these all together, and I think the central question of the Christian life is do you love me? Do you love me? Is what the question that Jesus would ask you. That's the question he asked Peter. Peter's disobeyed, uh, betrayed him. He's let him down. And then Jesus comes back, meets him on the, is resurrected and meets him on the seashore. And the question he asked Peter is, do you love me? And I think that is the question that Jesus would ask each one of you. And only you, and ironically he, will know the answer to that question. Do you desire him? Do you hunger for him? Do you long for him? That is the central goal, I think, of the Christian life. It sounds small, it sounds obvious, but it's often overlooked. And actually it speaks to the fact that Christ wants all of your heart. He doesn't want you to entertain other idols, other things that you say, this is the ultimate thing which will satisfy me. He wants to be the thing that captivates you, the thing you say, I need you more than anything else. So who is this for? Well, I said this speaks specifically to some, but it actually has implications for all of us. I think it speaks very specifically to those whose faith is actually like an empty shell. It's not to say that your life isn't superficially Christian, um, but you have nothing of the affection and desire and hunger to devote yourself to Christ. Perhaps you come to church out of habit. Uh, maybe you think, oh, there's some good moral teaching here. Or maybe your parents expect you to. Or you know, maybe you think, oh, yeah, Christianity has something to say in our culture wars. And I'm kind of drawn towards the kind of political implications of Christianity. What you've got to see is that Christianity primarily isn't a philosophy or worldview. It has all sorts of moral implications and ethical applications if you, if you treat Jesus as Lord, if you recognize him as Lord. But primarily, it's a, it's a, you might say it's the cult of Christ. It's a question of, are you loyal to him? Do you love him? And actually, to just live a Christianity full of empty gestures of just attending once in a while, it means nothing. And actually, it has nothing of the undergirding satisfaction that I think Christ offers. So if there'll be those of you whose your faith is actually just an empty shell, and you need to hear what Christ is saying to the Ephesian church here. 
But then it also, I think, this speaks to those of you whose love is, co- is cooling. You, speak, you see this in this chapter. It said, the Ephesians, they started well, but then their, heart, their love has cooled. Their spark, their love for Christ has disappeared. Some of you, you know what love for God feels like, but you know that actually your, your heart for him is diminished in some way. In fact, Matthew 24 says, the love of many will grow cold. It speaks about this very reality that some of you have experienced where you say, my love has grown cold. I don't feel the hunger and desire and affection for Christ that I once did. How would you tell? Well, here are a few things. One, you become begrudging or resentful about serving in ministry or the church. You feel resentful about the things that God places into your life, whether it be serving in a certain way or perhaps the people that he's placed you with, the community you find yourself in. You, you have a kind of inner monologue complaining either about the responsibilities or the people he's put around you. And sometimes that's not because of the people or the responsibilities. In a sense, there will always be difficult people in your life, in the church. But the church is kind of full of people who you wouldn't naturally choose to be your friends or your family. That's the point. There will always be people you don't naturally get on with. And there will always be sacrificial service. Tell that to Revelation 6, to the martyrs who are crying out for justice, who've literally given their lives. The question of sacrifice or difficult people, that's not the problem. The reason why those things start to irritate us is because actually we no longer see why we have to lay down our lives or or why we have to be around those difficult people. Actually, it's a question of our hearts. It's a question of the love. Sometimes, I wouldn't say that it's, it's totally right sometimes to put down your responsibilities and, and say they're not, they're not, there's something wrong there, but Actually, sometimes you have to look at your heart and say, why am I complaining here? Is it because my love has grown cold? It's not try harder, not do more stuff. It's return to your first love. Another way you might tell this is you don't enjoy sung worship. I think there are some who come to church and are just really mainly here for the sermon. Probably not when I'm preaching, but when Andrew's preaching, you think, I'm I'm coming here to hear some really good stuff, to have my mind stretched. But what you miss is that the worship is the, song, is, is, is the key part, in a sense, of the church service. It's where we sing. It's where the song erupts from our hearts to respond to the truth that's declared. Ultimately, the, I think one big test here is how does, what's, your, what's your default response to the gospel when you hear of the idea that Christ was willing to lay down his life for you, to come and to be hung on a tree, to be pierced, to have nails driven through his arms, to be humiliated for you, that he loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. That he loves you as he loves you as he loves you. That should make your heart sing. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't have that kind of response, then maybe our hearts have grown cold. But in a sense, I want to say, this is routine for me. This is on a, I, I come to this reality on a semi-regular basis. I start to feel resentful. I start to look at other lives and say, maybe I should do that, or this is going on, or, or something. There's some kind of discontent in my soul. And at that point, I have to ask myself, really, where's my love? Do I love Christ? Because that is the engine that will drive the Christian life. So you may have your heart growing cold. But there's also a warning here, I think, even in this. You see, warnings exist in the New Testament to, tell, to take us away from that thing they're warning about, right? And in a sense, I, I would be wrong. It's say even if you do love Christ in this very moment, you have to see there are things we do that can undermine our love, that can inhibit and diminish our love for Christ. Let me give you a few. First is that we define ourselves by what we're against rather than what we're for. We define ourselves by what we're against rather than what we're for. I think that's one of the things the Ephesian church is doing here. They're so focused on avoiding the errors of around them, which are multitude, and in a sense, we, we commend them for that. Christ commends them for that. But they've become so focused on avoiding that that they've missed what they're really about, that they're ultimately about a worship of Christ and about a love for him. 
It's right that we draw boundaries. It's right that we say, no, not that. And we'll come on to churches later on, as you, you can look at other letters here, where he speaks about that very problem. But we define ourselves primarily by what we're for rather than what we're against. Second of all, pet hobby horse Christianity. And what I mean by this is, what can start quite innocently, but we become passionate about one aspect of Christianity that becomes your thing that you're ultimately passionate about, sometimes more passionate than Christ about Christ himself. You become really passionate about the spiritual gifts, or you become uh, really passionate about theology and reading theology books, or evangelism, and, or Calvinism, or apologetics. And ultimately, what you've got to see is we do all of these things because we love Christ. We don't wake up in the morning and get a random desire to evangelize our neighbors or to go and accost random strangers and ask them, uh, you know, what's their eternal destiny. Most of us don't. Um, Really, we love evangelism because we love Christ, because we want to tell people about the person we've encountered. We love him and we say very organically, this is the best, but come meet the person who, who loves me, who loves you, who's the answer to your deepest longings. We love evangelism not because we love it, but because we love Christ. We don't, you don't have to love prayer. You don't have to love kind of getting in some sort of meditative state or be a kind of mystical personality. You just have to love spending time with Jesus and talking to him and listening to him and being in his presence to love prayer. You don't have to love big theology books or be the kind of person who's like a really academic person who just wants to read books all the time. You just have to like learning about Jesus and falling in love with him and seeing his beauty in a new and marvellous different dimensions. We don't, we don't love our hobby horses more than Christ and we don't become obsessed about other things instead of him. Ultimately, I think one of the easiest ways to do this is just neglecting the ordinary means of grace. God gives us many different spiritual disciplines as a way of recalibrating our hearts on a daily basis. Some of you have missed this reality here. The reason why I would encourage every Christian to read their Bible every day is as an act of restoring and recalibrating your heart. You know, this is what A.W. Tozer says, the Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him, they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. Some of you have the spiritual disciplines over here and your affections over here, and you've not connected the two. But the reason why we do these things is to recalibrate our hearts, to see Christ in all his sweetness. Everything we do in the life of the church, whether it be live groups or Sunday services or just getting together with a friend, ultimately we have to ask ourselves, is this growing my devotion for Christ? Is this growing my affection towards him? So what do we do then? So we've talked about the danger of loveless Christianity. We've talked about how this is relevant for all of us. What do we do? What does Christ call us to do? Well, you've got to hear really that even in this rebuke, I think we've got to hear that it's intended as an act of love. If, you're, if someone's in danger, the most loving thing you can do is warn them of that danger. You've got to hear that Christ is calling us back to him. That we might remember, that we might see his goodness and savour his sweetness. This is a corrective word. It's not just a simple rebuke. Ultimately, it says Christ wants our hearts. And there's two things he's calling for. First is that we remember our first love. We remember our first love. Remember how you felt when you understood the grace of God. Maybe there was a time in your life where you felt just absolutely 
kind of full of sin or weighed down by your own sin or dirty or, or just like, am I ever going to be free from this and condemned? And then maybe it was a sermon, maybe it was a reading a Bible, maybe it was someone praying for you, the grace of God appeared in your life, that you understood the idea that Christ washes you clean, he forgives you, that he removes that sin from you, that it's no longer on you, that you're no longer trapped by this sin, that, he doesn't, that, he, that God sees Christ when he sees you. And that tasted sweet to you. Or remember the time when you saw Christ's heroic character in new light, when you saw him on the way to the cross, willing to stay silent as he's attacked and acu- by his accusers, when he's uh, slandered and mocked on the cross, that he takes it all, the heroism, the humility, the righteousness, the nobility of that moment. And you see Christ's beauty in that way. Ultimately, we've got to hear the call to repent. And it's not a repent. We typically think of repentance like sin is over there and we repent and we turn away from sin. And of course, that's true. But really, I think it's a repentance, a turning back to Christ. To be honest, this is really, the solution here is rather simple. It's just turn and look at Christ. You see, even in this, we don't have to muster up the love for Christ. Like, I will love him, I will love him. It's not like some sort of human effort in that sense. It's just a simple matter of turning to Christ, of seeing him in his beauty and majesty, of asking the Spirit to come and show you more of his dazzling glory, just as I think we saw in Revelation chapter 1, the light beaming from his face to see that he is the one who satisfies your deepest longings, that here is the one who comes pursuing you in love, even as you've pursued other loves, other desires. Here is the one who comes over the the horizon, so to speak, coming to look for his bride. He loves his bride so much that he was willing to die for him, die for her, and so much that he would call her out and say, my darling, I love you. You're missing the point. You've been focused on all these other things, but you've lost your love for me. Come back to me. So when we, when, we, when we, what is the, Christ is calling us back to him now. He's calling us to hear and to see his invitation to love him, to worship him, to be enraptured by him, to be enthralled by him. This is the great mission of the Christian life. This is a daily act for me. It's not like a one and done This is the daily call to once again be enthralled by the person of Christ. There's a great line, I'm going to butcher it, but there's a guy, um, John Newton, the famous slave trader who became a Christian, and he describes, he said, it's something like, my heart is like a prison cell, and daily I ask the light of Christ to come and shine on it. And there's a sense to which that's how my heart feels in the morning. I probably don't feel enthralled by Christ, but as I come into his presence, as I see the person of Christ again, and I encounter his light, my heart is warmed. And that is, I think, the calling of, for all of us every day. And there's a promise at the end. It says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It says, For those of you who conquer, if you stay with Christ, if you remain with him, remain walking in his love, remain worshipping him, remain holding on to him, he says, one day I'll bring you to the new creation. He will come down and establish his kingdom fully on this earth. And he says, I will grant to eat from the tree of life. It's this wonderful picture, Revelation 22, right at the end, 
where it speaks of a, a river coming from the throne of grace, coming from God himself. And it says, On either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the, of the nations. It's a sense of saying, God will satisfy our deepest longings. We know that now as we pursue this love and this worship which satisfies our desires. We say we find satisfaction in Christ's love. And he says, one day I will satisfy you with fruit from the tree of life. It speaks of an Edenic city, a garden city, which is what was Eden? Eden was a place where love triumphed, where we experienced the love of God as God walked in the garden and we experienced our love with fellow man, unmarred by selfishness and sin and disorder unmarred by a self-centeredness that meant that we want to glorify ourselves rather than glorify God. We are heading for a day where Christ's love will reign supreme, that we will experience it and we will worship him and love him in a kind of unadulterated fashion. But until then, we seek to walk in love. We seek to worship him, to be enthralled by him, to love him, and all the practical implications that follow from that. That is our calling We say, come, Lord Jesus, come and awaken our hearts. Make us a hungry and devoted people. That is the calling for the people of God.